Hello, everybody. Bob Oxley here. It's time for tips, topics, issues, and positions. And uh, today we're going to be talking about what's going on with our state legislature, the Utah State Legislature, that's been uh, in a in session now for about 12 days. A lot of things happening up there in Salt Lake City, and it's been uh, my pleasure. I, I invited back uh, Dr. Jeremy Young, uh, who is the assistant professor of history at Dixie State University. And uh, I understand that just in the last week has been uh, told or informed, guess what? You're now the director of the Institute of Politics and Public Affairs. It's true. Welcome back. I can't deny it. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here. Congratulations on your promotion or your add-on activity. It's, on top of teaching and and working with the students, now you're going to be working with students in the Institute. So I think it's great. Thanks. It's absolutely great. A lot of exciting possibilities. Absolutely. Well, here we are. Uh, we're 12 days into this part-time state legislature here in Utah. And uh, I, right out of the gate, I've, I've been approached by a number of our listeners and said, whatever you do when you're with Dr. Young, please talk about this Medicaid expansion situation. Uh, I thought that we voted on to expand it and there was in, at the election booth uh, last November, and now this the, uh, the legislature is in session, and they go into committee and they repeal, uh, repeal Proposition 3. Can they legally do that? Is that what? So it, it's a, initiatives are an interesting uh, feature of state ballots. Obviously, there's no federal equivalent of an initiative, so it's only something that can be done at the state level. And a lot of voters assume that when an initiative passes at the state level, that that means it is enshrined into law permanently and cannot be changed or or, or adjusted at all. In fact, uh, initiatives, uh, unless it's a constitutional amendment, which this was not, uh, initiatives are simply laws. They get passed in the same way that a law would be passed if it was passed through the legislature and signed by the governor, which means they can be repealed or changed by uh, the legislature just like any other law. Now, uh, voters, um, in fact, initiatives have to be changed. <laughs> Almost always they have to be changed in some way because they have technical problems. In fact, even the supporters of this this initiative recognize that it can't just be enacted exactly as written. It ha there have to be some changes uh, to technical provisions. But uh, the question is, should the changes be purely technical or should the changes involve substantial changes, which is, I think, what you're seeing more at the legislature. Now, in Arizona, uh, there was a uh, medical marijuana bill passed, and interestingly, a similar uh, initiative passed in Utah this past cycle. And it was passed in 1996, and it was essentially completely repealed by the legislature in 97. So in 1998, in Arizona, the voters uh, approved a, I believe, a constitutional amendment called the religious, uh, sorry, called the, um, uh, the, the, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> I, I've forgotten the name off the top of my head. But in any case, what it provides for is that the, an initiative can, it, while it can be changed by the legislature, it has to reflect the, in, what's, in quotes, the intent of the voters. And that essentially allows initiative supporters to sue the state legislature if the legislature changes the point of the initiative, if they get rid of the, what the intent of the initiative was. Utah doesn't have a provision like that. So there's no way for uh, Utah voters to ensure that they will be that their initiatives will be able to take effect because they they vote for the initiatives, but they vote for the legislators too. And if the legislators disagree with the initiatives or think they have problems, then they have the right to overturn them. Wow. Well, carrying on, this came out of committee yesterday, a vote of nine to six. 
in favor of a repealing Proposition 3. And uh, there was debate back and forth, obviously, uh, before the vote was taken on that, before it came out of committee. And some of the arguments are they're saying that <clears throat> what they're preferring is that it would be 100% taking care of people that are at the poverty level. And uh, there's all sorts of things going on, like there's a 2010, you know, 20, or excuse me, a 10, a 90-10 ruling, and then there's a 25-75 ruling. I'm just really confused. It's very confusing. In other words, there is the federal funds coming in to compensate that. Uh, we're seeing ads on the TV now that saying that if this continues on, we're going to alienate 50,000 people that deserve health care. Uh, can you give us any insight on all that? I mean, it's so confusing. It's, it's, a, it's a very complicated situation. Uh, and part of the reason it's complicated is because of the federal government involvement. I mean, uh, under Obamacare, states were encouraged to expand Medicaid to cover many more people using a lot of federal funds, but those federal funds needed to have a state match. Uh, and the state match that the state has to contribute less and less of the funds as the, the uh, basically the, the, in order to encourage the states to cover as many people as the federal government wanted to cover, uh, the states would have to contribute fewer funds if they covered more people. So uh, the if they cover everyone the federal government wants to cover, they only have to pay 10 percent of that cost. If they cover a smaller amount, they have to cover 30 percent and it decreases from there. Um, the state, it's complicated because while the legislature has never been incredibly supportive of expanding Medicare uh, very much, uh, Medicare has been, uh, sorry, Medicaid has been, uh, th there's some support for expanding it a little bit uh, among almost all legislators. But the legislature has never been a big fan of expanding it all the way. Uh, the governor has been more supportive of expanding uh, Medicaid, but the one of the things that they, they're arguing about, they would like to see a smaller expansion, which means, of course, that they get fewer matching funds. The, the initiative called for a full expansion. Uh, and the other thing is they would like to institute a work requirement to say that uh, if you get, you're getting Medicaid, you have to work. And uh, that requires a waiver from the federal government. Now, other states have tried to get one of these. Uh, the Trump administration has said that they will provide these waivers, but so far they haven't really done so. And so the question is, if they, if they insist, if they pass a law that says Medicaid can't expand without a, a, this waiver, and then the federal government doesn't provide the waiver, uh, then that will mean there's no expansion, at least in the short term. And because the legislature doesn't meet year-round, uh, they wouldn't be able to expand it uh, without the waiver again until next year or if they called a special session before next year. So what I think the initiative has done is it has put, given some ammunition to people like the governor who want to pass a fairly substantial expansion, even if it's not the full expansion. It sort of nudged the conversation in the direction of expanding Medicaid, uh, but the, uh, the legislature doesn't want to expand it fully as the initiative called for. Got it. So the big, the big problem is it's not just our legislators that are confused. It's because we can't count on the federal government and what formula it is and getting access to those matching funds. And so before they make a commitment, Exactly. There, there's That's a the problem, right? There's a there's a con, there's, there's a, so many players here. There are uh, Democrats in the legislature who are have a lot of ammunition because of the, the the proposition which which supported their position, but don't have a lot of votes. Then you have Republicans in the legislature who don't all agree with each other. You have the governor who doesn't agree with every one of the with all of the legislative proposals. You have Obamacare which lays out certain policies, and you have the Trump administration which might provide waivers to those policies but might not. So it's it's just a very complicated situation. The initiative 
would fully expand it and would take advantage of all the federal funding. But there's concern among Republican legislators that it might cost too much for the state. The, the, it, it, the initiative raised uh, a sales tax to pay for the expansion, the state's portion of the expansion, but legislators are concerned that it wouldn't pay for all of it. Uh, and then that's what I heard in one of the arguments. They actually had the number. I, I think that we had a surplus, uh, fortunately, for the state of Utah of $800 billion, something like that. And uh, they took that number and expanded it with full expansion on Medicaid and how long it would last before we would be in deficit spending. And that's the big right. concern also. I think it's $800 million as a surplus. $800 million, but, but yes, If we had $800 billion, we could do everything. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm thinking about Amazon and fancy. Oh, yeah, yeah. We could, we could, we could put helipads in, in, in the Bears I mean, National Monument if we had $800 billion. <laughs> so uh, that's one issue. I, I think that's... You've given a great explanation because it's so complex and it is, it is. very confusing, even with the ads coming on, both pro and con, uh, just con- very confusing. So you can see some why some of the concern uh, from the various perspectives on the state legislature and the governor also. Right. Okay. And those ads are so confusing. That's why I don't have cable television. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've got a, something else we're talking about up there in Salt Lake during this session is um, – a tax cut. Right. Okay, the governor said a tax cut, but then all of a sudden what I'm seeing and what we're hearing coming out of there, they're on the side looking at other new areas that possibly could be taxed for the very first time and also looking at potentially increasing the tax levels of other areas that are currently being taxed. So my question to you, Dr. Young, is that and I'm just the little guy here spending money, uh, I get a tax cut, but all of a sudden then I go to use some of these uh, services that I've grown accustomed to, right. and it's cost more. So it's eating up that little bit of a tax cut that I got. So it, uh, why are they doing this? So the real question, what's really being debated here, is what type of taxes are each side prefers? And that's really the question. It's, it's not, is there going to be an overall tax cut, but is there going to be are, are they going to cut certain types of taxes and replace some of that revenue with other types of taxes? So generally speaking, and this is a very big generalization, it doesn't apply to every legislator or every voter, but generally speaking, uh, Democrats prefer so-called progressive taxes, that is taxes uh, that hit people who can afford to pay them harder than people who can't afford to pay them. The income tax is a classic example of a progressive tax because it progressively, as the wealthier you get, the more you're taxed. Uh, Property taxes are a form of progressive tax. Republicans, on the other hand, tend to prefer taxes that are uh, more based on individual choices, things like sales taxes, uh, things like uh, excise taxes, taxes on luxury goods, because they feel that that gives people the ability to choose whether they're willing to pay it, whether they're willing to do something that will result in them paying a tax. And so uh, what I think – I haven't followed this in as much detail as I should have, but the sense I get is that uh, Republicans are talking about cutting some income taxes and replacing them with some sales taxes and some other types of taxes. Um, and that would that would make sense consistent with the Republican philosophy on on how taxes should be should be handled. So we're not we won't see any deficit. We'll see any loss as a result of a tax cut. The the citizens of Utah will be happy because they got a tax cut, but we're going to 
see increases in certain areas. Right. So from a Republican perspective, if you get an income tax cut, something that you don't really have control over, you're not going to not get a job so you don't have to pay income tax. So you get an income tax cut and then you go out and you buy you know, a, a boat and you have to pay a lot of sales tax on that boat, then that's better because you've made the decision to buy this, this luxury good, a, a good that you're choosing to buy, and you're paying tax in that way rather than paying tax on uh, something that you can't get out of. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks. I appreciate it. Sure. You're clarifying a lot here today, so <laughs> I appreciate you. it. Uh, okay, are you ready for another one? Sure. Let's take a look at, the governor is really hot on this one, air quality. That inversion is really uh, a real negative, especially those people up in Salt Lake City. And and uh, we down here in St. George are concerned also because we have this projected population growth, and mm-hmm. we don't want to make those same mistakes. Um uh, He's encouraging the, the legislature to pass the different bills and uh, proposals that will uh, take on this air quality issue. Um, is there a, from a pure political standpoint, or is there a pro from a Democratic side and a opposition from the Republican side, or do we have a mix? Or I think it's a fairly muddled situation. Everyone agrees that the inversion is a serious problem. It causes health health problems for a lot of people. It contributes to, to serious medical expenses that cost everyone, individuals and the state, a lot of money. Um, the question is, what exactly do you do to fix it? Uh, and so th- the concern is that the a lot of the inversion gets created by uh, corporate pollution, factory pollution, things like this. And uh, Republicans would prefer a solution that didn't involve having to close a bunch of factories. That, that That's not, you know, get rid of a bunch of jobs. That's not the Republican approach to, to doing this. Um, it's, it's not entirely clear from a scientific perspective, at least as I understand it, what plans there are that wouldn't involve some kind of financial loss on the business end uh, to do this. And there's also some debate over this inland port project, uh, which, which uh, seems to be an, a business expansion uh, in Salt Lake. Uh, that may or may not contribute to the smog, depending on which side you ask. So uh, there's there's a there's broad agreement that something has to be done about the the inversion. It's it's a lot of smog. It's a lot worse in Salt Lake than it than it is in cities twice, three times the size of Salt Lake. But it's not entirely. There's a lot of debate over how to solve the problem. I think. Okay, and the government's the the uh, governor has already expressed that. He said, "Right, come up, give me some ideas." Give me something for us to get our arms right. around it because he wants this implemented right away. And I think the concern is that if they can't agree on some kind of a solution, and honestly, Democrats don't have the votes in either chamber of the legislature to force their position, but Republicans don't all agree on what needs to be done here. If they can't agree on some kind of solution, then the smog just gets worse. That's so, Everyone agrees something needs to be done. Uh, it's kind of like Brexit. Everyone agrees something needs to be done, but they can't agree on what it should be. <laughs> and so nothing's getting done. Got it. Got it. All right. I've got another one for you. Sure. Here we go. Education in the state of Utah. Right. Uh, governors really uh, wants to take this off, too. I see needs new approvals and needs, especially in rural areas mm-hmm. uh, in Utah. Uh, he's not happy with the numbers coming in and some of the uh, surveys that have been taken on the parts of students and their reading abilities and science abilities and things of that sort. Uh, what have you heard uh, as far as the state legislature on this? Are we moving forward? Great ideas or are we on hold? I've, I've been hearing a lot of things in terms of education funding coming out of the state legislature, and I'm not entirely sure what's going on. I've, heard, I've, been, here, I've been reading news stories that suggest that there's, there's a billion dollars sitting in an education fund that hasn't been used and isn't going to be used for education. 
uh, people saying that that's not true. I'm not. I'm not sure. I've been. I've. Yeah. I've been hearing uh, people. Uh, one thing that did happen is there was a plan to increase a sales tax uh, for, uh, or actually increase a sales tax to pay for roads that would replace money that was being used to pay for roads to take. Uh, to and let that money go to pay for schools instead. That was that was initially an initiative on the ballot in 2018, and then through a compromise with the legislature, it got replaced with a, a question uh, simply asking whether uh, whether they uh, voters would be willing to support something like that, and the voters voted it down. So that really took a lot of the wind out of the sails of people who want to give more money for education because the voters didn't really approve that. Um, but then, yeah, and I think the governor is really zeroing in on sort of merit-based oh. approach, mer- approaches to, to teaching, so, sort of t- school reform approaches, basing things on test scores, basing things on outcomes, uh, which a lot of teachers would argue is not the best way to, ma- to, to, to measure outcomes through standardized testing. Uh, but the governor is not happy with, with the way this, the tests are working, and he's considering a lot of different options for what to do about that, some of which involve money, some of which don't. And, he, and he, his concern is legitimate. He said uh, – uh, because they're trying to incent new companies to coming to our area and they're going to look at the educational levels and those numbers, even though you don't, don't agree with those, those numbers will give some kind of an indicator. And plus, when we're measured against other states in the right. union, that's really upsetting. To well, and I think there's broad agreement on both parties and all parts of the Republican Party that there's that there's there's work to be done on the K through 12 education system in in Utah. It's just how to measure it and what to do it do with it. This is you know this is this is state government 101. It's it's everyone agrees that there are things that need to be fixed, but if they can't agree on how to fix them, then they won't get fixed. Got it. Yeah. All right. Uh, here's another one for you. Just uh, the, the came, was in committee and in, uh, some of the proposals they're looking at as far as abortions concerned mm, right. and uh, on mongoloid uh, pregnancies. Uh, whether to uh, I guess the proposal yesterday that came out was and the debates just begun. Uh, whether or not to uh, make it unlawful to have an abortion for a, a mongoloid uh, depicted uh, pregnancy. Uh, do you know have any information on that at all? Uh, you're going to have to remind me what they mean by a mongoloid pregnancy. Yeah, they're they're indicating that there's some kind of a uh, uh, psychological problem or identified problem with the uh, oh right okay the, the fetus itself, and so that would be a justification, and they want okay. to uh, they want to make it strong a strong law that that is in, indeed in the state of Utah unlawful so that you can't abort for for uh, issues of mental deficiency you can only abort for medical necessity yes right I mean I think that that's I mean there are laws, laws like that have been passed in other states um, and they've I think they've they've for the most part, been I mean, some of them have been upheld, some of them have not. But the real question is, with the new Supreme Court, what's going to happen? And that's that's a, that's a big question. The, the Supreme Court having, uh, in theory, five justices now who uh, are not supportive of Roe v. Wade uh, is is there going to be sort of sort of erosion of those of abortion rights stemming from that decision? And the decision that just came out uh, yesterday uh, indicates maybe not. Uh, Justice Roberts voted with the four liberal justices and and upheld. Uh, 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 um, or uh, struck down a measure that in Louisiana that was going to uh, erode some of those those protections, and so there's it's not clear whether or not bills like this will be upheld in Congress. But there's certainly a big push in a lot of conservative states, in particular, to pass bills of this type, bills restricting abortion in various ways, uh, to to see if they'll if they'll stand up now with the new court. Yeah, I was surprised with Chief 
Justice Roberts vote on that. Uh, yeah. There was going to, I think there, Louisiana, the proposal was they'd close all of the abortion clinics except for one in the entire right. state. So Right. And Justice Roberts, I mean, he's a politician. He certainly has a, a brilliant legal background, but he, he worked, his, his immediate background before becoming a federal judge was he worked on uh, George W. Bush's 2000 presidential campaign as an attorney and as a political staffer. And so then he became a federal judge and then very quickly a, a, a chief justice of the Supreme Court. And I think that political background has has led him, and this is my speculation, but I think it's led him to feel that uh, it's important for the court not to make decisions that will erode the court's legitimacy. So he he's the kind of judge, even if he doesn't support Roe v. Wade, he would rather sort of nibble away at the edges of it rather than have a big big decision that strikes it down or something like that. You know, he wasn't willing to support a decision striking down Obamacare. He wasn't, even though Anthony Kennedy, who was at the time a more moderate justice than Roberts, was willing to vote for that. He wasn't willing to, uh, uh, he's been unwilling to pass a variety of, uh, you know, other than Citizens United and the Hobby Lobby decision, he's been unwilling to be, participate in, in a lot of very, uh, very highly sought after by conservatives uh, decisions. So I think that, that it's possible that that may continue. And in fact, we've seen Justice Kavanaugh, who also has a political background, make some moves like that as well, although he didn't in this case. So I think it's not as clear as it might have seemed during the Kavanaugh hearings that this is that, that Roe v. Wade is simply going to disappear. But I certainly think it will continue to be chipped away. At. Yeah, I think that Kavanaugh's uh, write-up on this uh, uh, statement indicated right. that uh, this is a temporary Right. Kavanaugh said he'd support it, but he wanted to he wanted to see if it if it created a hardship and then maybe strike it down later. So so he, too, is not fully willing to go there with with the, the other conservatives, uh, Alitos, uh, uh, Thomas and and uh, who am I? Oh, and Gorsuch uh, are are uh, certainly willing to strike these things down. But those two, maybe not. Leave, leave your options open. Right. Definitely. They are, and people <laughs> think they're all legal minds, brilliant legal minds. But boy, the, the politician is coming out. I think it's useful to have politicians on the Supreme Court sometimes because they have a sense of of what is feasible and what is not in a per- particular political climate. So I, I appreciate the I don't think every judge should be a politician, but I appreciate having one or two on there. Sandra Day O'Connor had a political background, too, when she was on the court. And I think she used that to great advantage. That's fantastic. I'm going to bring the next uh, state legislature concern is because we're talking monies here. Sure. Uh, we're going to bring it down to our campus here at Dixie State University. Okay. We've got a proposal for a brand new science and technology center, a right. gorgeous building uh, that's uh, requiring a little over $40 million. Uh, and uh, my understanding is the state legislature is taking, t- legislature is taking a look at that, and uh, I think we're number two as far as priorities are concerned is the way they work up there. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, based on your knowledge of the way the state legislature is operating today, do you think that we may have some good news here in about a month? Well, I certainly hope so. I think that building is very needed. Uh, I mean, our science building is is you know it's it's been well used over over the years. It's 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 older. It doesn't have the lab space or the lab setups that our our science courses and professors and students really need. Um, and I and the bill I've seen the blueprints for the building. It looks beautiful. It's exactly what a, a campus like ours uh, requires. So I certainly hope that it works. State uh, of I the can't art. Speak for the legislature. Yeah, state, <laughs> state of the art. Everything. Oh it's yeah. Just, uh, I mean, absolutely. No, so we're gonna have the performance center opening up in the fall and maybe breaking ground. Hopefully, if the state legislature loves us like we all know they do here <laughs> right. at Dixie State University. Oh yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, I you I said this time would fly. Oh yeah. I just got the high sign. So um, I I really want to thank you. Uh, Dr. Young for coming on, coming into the uh, studio today and explaining a lot of confusing things that Medicaid expansion 
is so confusing, and you really did a great job, and you really helped out a lot of our listeners really try to understand the complexity of making a decision. It's not just one side or the other. There's a lot of variables involved there. Well, thanks, and I don't envy the state legislators yeah. having to sort through all this complexity. It's I, a tough job, and I think they do it well. And I think based on everything, that you, how you've explained these different issues and different things, the proposals that are looking at, I think that the listeners now are aware that this is a very, very complex job. Oh, very much and, so. And uh, it takes a lot. And uh, trying to please their respective constituencies as well as moving forward for the state of Utah and, the, and all of our citizens here in the state. Great. Thanks for having me on, Bob. Well, I appreciate I it. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. And now, since you're now the director of Institute of Politics and Public Affairs, wow, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those, that activity, those events coming up. Oh, yeah. We have a pizza and politics series that meets every other Thursday on uh, uh, at noon in the Gardner Center living room. Uh, so watch for uh, descriptions of those events coming out soon. Right. We have one coming up in a week. Fantastic. We will. Thanks right. again. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes tips, topics, issues, and positions for another week. Uh, you can listen to us at 3 o'clock on Fridays and rebroadcast at 5 o'clock on Saturdays on KDXI 100.3. Or if you want to take a look at the smiling face of Dr. Young, uh, we're available on Facebook, Twitter, uh, even Alexa. You just say Radio St. George Tips and ask for the 2019 Utah Legislative and it'll come up and uh, it'll hear our wonderful voices and take a look at uh, uh, Dr. Young once again. Again, I want to thank you. I uh, hope to hear, you'll see, hear from us next week. Tune in at 3 o'clock on Friday, and we'll have another uh, topic, an issue, and some positions. Until that time, please have a safe and enjoyable weekend. Bye now.